the letter of the law does not differentiate between a church-based charity and a secular nonprofit. Churches in the U.S. get away with non-disclosure because the government lets them. Right. Period. Now, the good book says in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is the root of all evil. And the lust for it grows when there's more of it to lust after. So many of the expenses that you and I are personally responsible for simply don't affect a lot of pastors in larger churches. There are pastors out there who understand. Right. But there are also many more who either don't understand the wrong in their lifestyle being elevated above pretty much everyone in the congregation. And there are those that flat out don't care. Just because something is legal doesn't make it ethical. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get Unbound. Money. It's a hit. But don't give me that do-goody-good while I'm rolling around in my Escalade and half my congregation can't pay their rent bullshit. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight we are talking about Christian churches and charities and what they do with your money. Yeah. This is a little bit of a follow-up to our talk about tithing way, way back. But I think that it's important that people understand what the average Christian charity slash church and those things can be one and the same often do with the money that you give them. And a little bit of a spoiler alert, I'm not going to be doing any huge exposés on the local church or giving you horror stories about things that I experienced, because just like with a lot of things with this, I feel like the church that I was at was one of the ones that got it more right than average. Right. And I think that there was definitely a degree of honesty with the way that they handled money. And I also want to add another disclaimer that this is not the type of thing that you're going to see happening in a church with like 50 people. We're talking about larger congregations that establish themselves as 501c3 nonprofits or as Christian charities. And they do it for very specific reasons that we will get into in a few minutes. Before we get into any of that, I just want to make a quick appeal to those of you who have the means to help us out. Our Patreon account is located at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. And if you can throw us a fiver to help us keep doing what we're doing, it would be greatly appreciated. We do, of course, understand that in the ongoing COVID crisis, there, there are a lot of people out there that don't have the money to spend on yeah. things like this. And we get that. We're glad that you are listening. But just like I've said before, if you can't support us financially, support us with your voice, support us with your shares, your likes, your five-star ratings, subscribing to us on YouTube and hitting the bell, that's another big thing that you can do. Anywhere you get podcasts, you can find us at Unbound Podcast Network, and that's also true of YouTube. We could really use some YouTube subscribers. Yes. So if you have just a couple of seconds to do that, if you can't afford to help us out financially, getting on YouTube right now would really, really help us out tremendously because I have some other things in the works that I want to start working toward putting together that'll be content that will at least start out as YouTube content. So I'd like as many people as possible to be able to benefit from that. 
So this week's homework, as I've said many times before, tell someone new about the show. Link out to your favorite episode if it's appropriate in a social media conversation. And this week, I'm going to add subscribe to us on YouTube, please. It will help us out tremendously. There's actually a link right there on the homepage at getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. And you can just click the link right there to go to our YouTube channel and subscribe and hit the bell so that every time we get a new episode out, you get to see it there. And there are download links in the descriptions to every video that we put out on YouTube also. I'd really like to start seeing that part of it bulked up a little bit if you guys can help us out. Getting into the meat of our message for this episode, I want to start out by simply answering the question, what is a charity? A charity is a type of nonprofit, but with slightly different purposes and responsibilities than a designated NPO or NFPO. NPO is a nonprofit organization and NFPO is a not-for-profit organization. They mean the same thing. Yeah. All churches are nonprofits and many also operate as charities. The most succinct answer that I got came from a website that's simply called howcharitieswork.com. And these are the rules that all charities have to follow. A charity's aims have to fall into categories that the law says are charitable. These are things like preventing or relieving poverty or advancing the arts, culture, heritage, or science. It has to be established exclusively for what is known as public benefit. That means its only purpose must be charitable. Charities can't make profits. All the money they raise has to go toward achieving their aims. A charity can't have owners or shareholders who benefit from the money coming in. Mm. Now, before I say anything else, I want to state for the record that the vast majority of churches handle funds in a way that they define as ethical, and they are typically right at least as often as they're wrong. It's difficult to have a clear image in your head of what ethical means when you've been taught to defer every decision you make about everything in life to an imaginary deity. If it's what God wants, it's ethical. And that's how they define what's right to do with the money that comes in. They pray about it, and they do what they believe God wants done with that money. And I can even remember when I was in the middle of my internship, I had a conversation with our senior pastor about a site out on Route 9 in Poughkeepsie, a billboard site that had been dormant for quite a while. And he was concerned about the fact that we hadn't seen a whole lot of growth in a while. Within maybe the last 18 months or so, things were kind of stagnating. And I mentioned this to him. And I said, well, you know, I've actually looked into the costs involved with this. And it's not cheap, but it's not terribly expensive either. And a lot of churches put up billboards. And we're talking about a billboard that is literally in our neighborhood within two miles of where the church was. And it seemed like a good idea to do a little bit of advertising and let people who didn't know we were there know that we were there. Because the way the church was situated, you could see there was a big sign right down there on the road, but you couldn't really see the church from the road unless you were looking for it. So it was a very nice location. It was a nice building, but you kind of had to drive up this big hill to get to it. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't see it from the road. So a sign is only going to get so much attention, especially if you're not looking for a church sign. People are more impressed by church buildings than they are church signs. So my thought was, why don't we take out that billboard for a couple of months? And 
he said, you know what, Joe, I've actually thought about this. This is not, it's like, I don't want to steal your thunder, but this has been in my head for a little while too, because I drive past that thing every single day and it's been in my head, but it is expensive. And I can just think of better things that we should be doing with God's money. So there are the good eggs out there. I learned from several of the good eggs who understand the idea of ethics and understand that we could have used that money to more directly help people who are already in our midst, who had already come to us looking for help. And instead of blowing, it was 2,500 bucks a month for this billboard. And I figured two to three months, it should bring people in. And I mean, I was still thinking like the little marketer back then, but you know, my, my thought was, as with most evangelicals who are in the kind of position that I was in, my thought was we spend some money on this for three months and some people come in and their tithes start paying for it a little bit over time. Right. But he was of the mind that this money is sitting here and we have people in need right here, right now. So even if we're not growing that much, it would be a better thing to do to figure out how to allocate that money in a way that helps people right now. So what can you say to that? Right. What exactly can you say to argue with something like that? So yeah, that entire thing wound up getting tabled. But again, the point is that there are pastors out there, there are church boards out there that even though their direction is completely wrong, and, and we know this because of what we know for ourselves in terms of religion and spirituality, we know that they're wrong, but at least you can say that they were sincere yeah. and that they had good intent. That's not true of all of them. No. <laughs> but I would venture to say that when you're dealing with the local church that also has a designation as a charity, the vast majority of them are trying, at least trying to do the right thing. Right. But, you know, it all gets overshadowed and clouded with the fact that this is what they're doing with it. So I can't personally get past that. But I'm also not going to be too, too judgy of the ones that at least try to do this right. There are plenty of caveats and there are plenty of ethical hmms yeah. with it that we're going to talk about right now. Many times the decisions about how to allocate funds that come into a, a church or a Christian charity are made by people who don't stand to gain personally from them. So I'm willing to say that in their own deluded way of thinking about things, they think that they're making good choices, doesn't make them right. It just makes them typically not greedy assholes trying to fleece the masses for their own benefit. The people who make these decisions typically have been taught to think a certain way about money, not the least of considerations being that they view the first 10% of everyone's income who calls themselves Christians to belong directly to God. I want to further note that I'm speaking primarily about individual churches and not larger bodies like the AG councils, or as I like to refer to them, the Pentecostal mafia installments that flat out extort tithes from people, particularly their ministers, because I had to pay tithes, or would have if I had made it that far, I would have had to pay tithes to the district to be able to perpetuate my license to preach, and yes, that's what they called it, or ordination because that was those were the two steps. You got your license to preach, and then you were ordained. But it was all contingent on whether or not you kept up with your tithes. And if you didn't, there could be problems. So you can take that at face value. 
We're not talking about the parent organizations. We're talking about individual neighborhood churches that have a kind of a sizable congregation. Let's say maybe 300 and up. We're talking larger church bodies that bring in a lot of money. And it is a lot of money. How much money? People give away insane amounts of money in tithes and free will offerings every year to their churches. Churches and church charities are big business. Yeah. And the thing is... These people who give, give 10% of their income and at the end of the year literally have nothing to show for it except for the fact that the roof is still over their head when they're in church. That's really all that they get out of it. In an article called Churches Are Financial Black Holes, here's what Congress can do about it from thinkprogress.org. And in it, we learn that in 2016, Americans donated more than $120 billion dollars to religious organizations, most of which were congregants donating to their local churches. We're talking about tithes and free will offerings predominantly, $120 billion. That's a lot. That was four years ago. I wonder what it looks like right now. Probably lower with COVID and all of that. Mm. Might be a little bit lower, but it's still going to be within range. That's for sure. But here's the problem. Here's one of the problems. Christian churches lose $63 billion each year worldwide to internal ecclesiastical crime, according to estimates by the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. So $120 billion just in tithes and offerings, and then $63 billion of it goes bye-bye. Yeah. You know, so if you're good at math, or not even that good at math, because I suck at math, and I can look at that and say that's half. Yeah. That's so, about half, yes. About half. And that accounts for more than 16% of churches' total income. The director of that study said in 2013 that, quote, as much as 95% of fraud within churches goes undetected or unreported. So that money literally goes bye-bye. Yeah. So when you think about your tithe, that 10% just became 5%. Yeah. yeah. It's staggering. When you think about just how much of it just goes completely undetected or unreported. And yet one in 10 Protestant churches still self-reported embezzlement just in the year 2017. And this is what I'm talking about. They're not required to keep some of the records that they keep, but many of them do. Right. And I think that a lot of times it's more that they want to have those records so that they can backtrack if things go missing. And they might be able to figure out what happened. Well, what happened, by and large, is that someone stole it. There are all kinds of ways that money disappears from churches. A lot of times it's just misappropriation or misallocation of funds also. So it's not necessarily $60 billion being stolen. It's a lot of money being stolen and some money just being mishandled to the point where no one knows what the fuck happened to it. Churches and other Christian nonprofits are not always directly to blame for this. In many cases, fraud is committed by individuals within the organization and the activity is rarely prosecuted or even made public. And here's why. They keep everything within the confines of border vestry chambers because people would stop giving if they knew that this was the kind of thing that was happening. If they knew they were giving 10%, but only 5% of that was actually being used the way that it was supposed to, that would piss some people off. Because they get it pounded into them quite a bit that this is something that they have to do. And they trust their church to be good stewards of the money that they're giving them. And most churches are pretty lousy stewards of the money that they get. And that is not, like I said before, it's not something that 
I believe to be intentional. I just think that there's a lot of ineptitude. Right. And there's a lot of turning a blind eye to certain things that happen when money disappears. That's the thing is that when you go to school to be a pastor, finances are not covered in how you should run your church or what you should do with the money that comes in. It's true. Even those of us who went through public school, public education, we were never really, I mean, I think that I came in on the tail end of when they were teaching things like balancing a checkbook. Right. They didn't go far enough. They no. they never have. Our, the public school system has never gone far enough in teaching money management. Just to give you an idea of some of the crazy shit that happens, a couple of interesting stories that come out of the Catholic Church. Now, we all know the kind of money pit that the Catholic Church is, and we know the kind of largesse that they are known for, that... They are very unabashedly known for. But these are two stories that I don't know, that they kind of made me chuckle, but at the same time, it really pissed me off just based on the amounts. Yeah. But let's talk about two nuns who skimmed $500,000 over a decade from their Catholic school employer. What were we talking about last week? Catholic schools and and private schools being expensive? Oh, yeah. $500,000 over a decade. And that was money that they managed to not have noticed for a little while. So there's a lot of money Mm -hmm. in Christian schools. They gambled all of that money away in Vegas. (laughs) And an internal investigation by the school revealed what they were doing. While the incident seems unbelievable, it is common as churches often fall prey to fraud and embezzlement by employees. So the other one, also from the Think Progress article... Actually, did I even intro that? This information is coming from an article from thinkprogress.org, and there are a couple of other examples in there, but I'm going to read just one more. Recently, it was found that one Michigan priest embezzled about $5.4 million over 26 years. I mean, when you think of it in terms of 26 years, that's small amounts of money here and there that could easily be tucked away or hidden, especially when you're dealing with cash. Yeah. But he did get found out. It took more than a quarter of a century, but they found him out. Another one in Connecticut stole $1.3 3 million over seven years, some of which he spent on male escorts. And over nearly a decade, a 67 year old church clerk for the Archdiocese of New York stole a million dollars and spent a decent chunk of it on collectible dolls. That's just extra. Very extra. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I could almost justify it if they were like rare action figures. I like oh, action boy. figures. But, you know, a million dollars in dolls. Uh, well, no, it wasn't. Okay, let's be fair. It wasn't a million dollars in dolls. The article just says that a decent, a decent chunk, chunk was spent on these things. And they're expensive. I have looked at the prices. Those are expensive little deals. Oh, yeah. Any kind of collectible anything yeah. is going to be expensive because they're like huge niche markets. And yes. the people who want them really, really want them to the point of embezzling a million bucks from the from the diocese that they work for. I do think it's significant to mention that it is very rarely the pastor of an evangelical church who turns out to be guilty of fraud. Catholic priests kind of have their own market cornered on this. But the average pastor is usually not the one to blame when money goes missing in the church. 
Now, that doesn't include megachurch televangelists. And I mean, there's a whole episode right there. But those people, yeah, they're, they're their own brand of evil. And we will we'll set the crosshairs on them eventually, too. But churches with sizable congregations and also sizable staffs are often targeted by employees in areas of the ministry that wouldn't be primarily suspect. Lots of secretaries paid ministry heads, even cleaning staff, have been known to figure out ways to make their association with the organization just that much more lucrative. Then again, sometimes they are a little bit more high profile, like, say, the treasurer. Yeah. Same article. One treasurer of the National Episcopal Church once embezzled more than $2.2 million from the church's coffers over five years. That was the treasurer. How do you think you're not going to get caught? Because you're the treasurer? Right. You're keeping books, mm. and people will notice eventually. I say that these things often come from unlikely sources, but just like the whole the butler did it thing, yeah. they're going to look at the obvious sources first. Yeah. So if you're the treasurer of a church and you're embezzling funds, yeah, that's... you're probably going to get caught. Yeah, that you're going to get caught for that. Now, another little caveat here. The pastor may not be the one pulling off the heist, and usually he's not. Or she, let's be fair, he or she is typically not the one responsible for that. But this person is also typically the head of the board, or vestry, however you want to name it, and is also the one who ultimately decides, even in more democratically run leadership models, they're the ones that decide whether or not to prosecute the offenders. And this, in my mind, raises questions of the levels of honesty and integrity coming from the pulpits of these churches. Because I feel like at that point, if you are going to be the quote-unquote good steward of God's money, then you owe it to the congregation to let them know what's happening with their money. But that's not something that happens terribly often. Why, then, are churches particular targets of things like embezzlement fraud? To put it plain and simple, it's easy to steal from a church because they don't keep records like other nonprofits and the larger ones collect lots of money, plenty of it in cash, and that's significant. There are also fewer requirements for churches under federal law. For example, churches are exempt from filing financial information with the IRS, including the annual form 990, which tracks every penny that comes into a secular nonprofit and every penny it spends. This is where the term financial black holes comes from for that article that we cited earlier. So why do churches get special treatment? It's significant to note that the only reason there's less accountability for churches is because Congress doesn't exercise its privilege to require it. There's no constitutional roadblock whatsoever to demanding a Form 990 or any of its variants based solely on the fact that a nonprofit is also a church. The letter of the law does not differentiate between a church-based charity and a secular nonprofit. Churches in the U.S. get away with non-disclosure because the government lets them, Right. period. If you want to see that change, bring it up with your congressman. They're the ones that are letting it happen. There is, of course, the matter of all that cash also. When the brethren, as my pastor used to refer to them, passed the plate during the offertory, they weren't carrying receipt pads with them. If you wanted a receipt, you had to write a check, and your receipt came in the form of your canceled check. But there was also one other thing that you could do. You could also use, at least in our church, I don't know what it's like in every church, but at least in our church, you could also use an offering envelope and use cash and your contributions would be tracked 
so that you could write off your tithes on your taxes for that year. I think everyone had some kind of a number or their tax yeah. ID or something like that that they would write on the envelope. And there was just a record that was right. kept so that if you wanted a record for your taxes that said, I gave this much money to my church this year, you could get that and it would be accurate. I guess that was the receipt in question. But walking up and down the aisles, you didn't really get that. And I saw a lot of loose cash oh, yeah. going into those offering plates. And once that money is out of that person's hand and in the offering plate, there it goes into that black hole. Yeah. Because cash is completely untraceable. And churches, any organization really, but churches in particular, because they have these little safeguards built into the way that the government tells them to do things, it's much easier for a church to let some of that money go into places that it shouldn't, or let it disappear, or not count it properly, or any number of things that could happen in a situation like that. So you could track what you gave, but most people just shoved money into the plate and forgot about it. Yeah. And at that point, it's just plain gone. Yeah. Well, at least from their wallets, it's just plain gone. What the church does with it, I mean, that's anybody's guess, especially if you don't make a designation. And that is also something that you can do when you give to any organization. Legally, you can designate it for one specific purpose. Right. And we'll get into that a little bit later, too. So the money that you gave in the offering could be kept track of for individual purposes, but it was never kept track of for organizational purposes. Tithing in cash was never discouraged in our church, but I did see plenty of groups and guest speakers who came in and angled pretty heavily for cash. Oh, yeah. Few of them made any provision for tracking your donations, but the church I attended had a policy of collecting the money and writing checks so that you could, if you wanted to, still use an offering envelope and get credit for your donation, even though the cash literally walked right out the door unaccounted for by the IRS. Right. It's very easy, even now, in the year 2021, with all of the securities that are built into the money that we carry around with us, mm -hmm. it's still very easy to shelter and even outright steal cash for individuals who choose to take that route when handling church funds. And at the end of the day, who really knows just how big a problem this actually is? The actual numbers of embezzlement cases come from churches with enough ethics to disclose. That doesn't account for all of them, not by a long shot. So is my 10% really 5% or is it more like three yeah. or two? Where does this money go? It's not an easy question to answer. In most churches, it goes pretty much where it's supposed to. But there's still that massive chunk that just goes bye-bye and you never know. And let me tell you something. There is a lot of cash that makes its way into those offering envelopes. And I know this because I was one of the ones tasked with counting it from time to time. One of the first times I ever saw hand sanitizer yeah. was when I was counting cash because let's just put it out there. Cash is kind of filthy. Yeah, it is. So we would sit there and we would count it and then we would sanitize or sometimes in the middle, we would sanitize because ugh, you could start feeling it after a while. Oh, yeah. When you handle a lot of money, you can feel how grimy it is. It's kind of nasty. But I was called upon to do this more than once at my church, at least twice that I can remember just during my internship because it was something that I, quote unquote, had to learn. Right. So I saw the way that our church did things. I can say from experience that the people that handled the money handled it with integrity. 
And I would go as far as to say that most people who are tasked with that in local churches, they're board members or they're ushers or people who have a genuine interest in serving their church and serving God. And most of them are not going to just pocket it because they can. Right. Most of them aren't going to do it that way. It disappears in a lot of different ways. I was talking about how I was present for this. My home church required three people present when money was counted to ensure that all of the money that was collected from people's tithes and offerings went where it belonged. And sorry, it's hard to find three guys who will act as accomplices unless it's their own grift. Just like I said a minute ago, most of these people are pretty sincere. It would be difficult to find three you could get into cahoots with. Yeah. And just start stealing money from the church. Not that it doesn't happen. I'm sure it does. But it's difficult. Yeah. It's difficult to put that together. Now, when I received stipends for guest speaking or on other occasions where I was doing something above and beyond and I got a little bit of a kickback for it, an offering was usually taken. The few times that I spoke at our home church, an offering was taken and the money was collected. It was tallied and I wound up getting a check from the church who in turn reported the disbursement in the annual report, but not, I don't think, to the IRS. Just for the sake of example, the summer that I interned, I was an employee. So I had taxable W-2 income from that. The offerings did not come with pay stubs and the amounts that I got from those couple of offerings did not appear on my W-2s. All in all, I got about $700 that summer in offerings above and beyond my salary and was encouraged to tithe on it because, of course, I was. Yeah. But the point is that they can and do play fast and loose with cash, even when it's documented, because the documentation doesn't have to be shared with the IRS. That money I got was income, pure and simple, but it wasn't taxed. It was up to me to decide whether or not to report it. Since they weren't required to report that money to the IRS, they just handed it over, keeping 10% with my verbal consent for legal and taxation purposes, though that money flat out didn't exist. Yeah. And that's where a lot of the black hole theory of this comes from. I kind of jabbed at this at the very beginning. I'm going to touch on something here that does kind of raise my hackles a little bit when it comes to where your money goes when you give it to your church. This section of my notes, I titled it Pastors and Cadillacs. Yeah. Well, choose the luxury vehicle of your choice here, but the sentiment remains the same. Let's just preface any commentary on this by providing a brief description of what a nonprofit is. And this comes from a website called score.org, and it simply says this, quote, a nonprofit is based on the simple premise that none of the corporation's net profit from donations, membership fees, or business activities will benefit any individual. Bookmark that phrase, any individual. So if that's true, why is it that the pastor of a church of, like I said before, maybe 300 or bigger, tends to have more lifestyle than the average member of his congregation? Simple. Even as elected positions, board members typically have good relations with the pastor, and that small group of people often has the final say on things like pastor salaries, stipends, and allowances because they were elected to make those kinds of decisions. But if I'm driving an 83 Chevette and the pastor is driving an Escalade, wouldn't that be an example of benefiting an individual? From an ethical standpoint, yes. 
From an ecclesiastical standpoint, no. Let's not forget that these decisions are made as the result of things like prayer and discernment. Big air quotes, discernment in the minds of those involved. God himself, as far as they're concerned, confirmed that the pastor deserves that money and they are being obedient Mm. in approving that salary. My pastor, he was a good guy, but he was one of those Cadillac drivers. And just as a little compare and contrast, here's what the board decided that God wanted me to have Hmm. when I was interning at that church. During my internship in 1992, I worked at this church an average of 70 hours per week, and that, I think, is being conservative. Yeah. I think it had to be at least that, given what I remember about my time there and the amount of time I spent there. I think that that's pretty damn close and probably more. My weekly salary was $120 per week straight. I was not hourly or anything like that. I was granted this little stipend of 120 bucks a week. My internship was 15 weeks, giving me a gross income of $1,800 for the entire summer. Add to that the $700 in offering money, and I made a whopping $2,500 for four months' work, working the equivalent of two full-time jobs when calculated at 35 hours per week. My hourly wage for that summer then was approximately $2.38 per hour. That's what God decided that my time was worth. Now, to be fair, let's just be fair about this. I was lucky to be paid in the first place because most internships are, in fact, unpaid. But when you're putting in 70 hours a week, you kind of sort of need to have something to show for that if you're going to keep up that momentum and keep up that energy. And our pastor was also pretty big on the notion of the worker being worthy of his hire. And... I earn that money and then some, but there are a lot of pastoral interns that will work an entire summer, and a college summer is almost four months. They will work an entire summer for basically no pay, especially if it's not their home church. They'll be assigned to a church. They will live with somebody for that amount of time, and that family, that host family is responsible for their room and board, but that's all they get. Maybe, maybe a small stipend. And usually not every week. Yeah. Usually that comes at the end of the internship. After that person has had a chance to preach to the congregation, they'll take an offering and that's what they make for the summer, period. So I could have made 700 bucks for the entire summer. I did a little bit better than that. So I don't want to sound ungrateful, but when you look at it in terms of what I made per hour, come on now. <laughs> it was a pittance. But that apparently is what God decided that my time there was worth. It wasn't worth that much, yeah. given given what I was doing yeah. and the direction that I was steering people's lives into. No, it wasn't even worth $2.38. But at the time, with me being there and putting in the work, of course, it seemed like it should have been more valuable than that. Mm. I also knew what the pastor made, and it was not enough to afford the cars that he drove. He made good money, for sure, but not late model Cadillac every couple of years good, so... How did he do it? The simple and honest and straightforward answer here is that he didn't. The church did. And this is also typical. Now, the more honest pastors out there do, in fact, pay for those cars. But again, I'm putting up air quotes. Those payments often come in the form of various allocations and allowances that they get above and beyond their normal salaries. 
Now, these were kind of the fairy tales that they told us in college that were going yeah. to be waiting for us. Again, large churches. Yes. Not a first-time youth pastor in a church with 50 people. Yeah. These are larger churches that we are talking about, but they made it sound like this was what our lives were going to be. Mm-hmm. And it's not every church out there. Not every church can afford to do this. There are things like clothing allowances, book allowances, entertainment allowances, which really cover things like lunches out with colleagues and church volunteers and that sort of thing where the pastor basically gets to tag along and get a free lunch for himself too. There's room and board that a lot of times they get in the form of a parsonage or they are reimbursed for rent or mortgage expenses. And yes, also transportation funds that are often monies not reported as W-2 income. Right. So if a pastor lives in a parsonage, the church pays the mortgage. And that alone takes a lot of the pressure off the pastor in terms of financial responsibilities right there. I can't even begin to imagine what our lifestyle would look like if we didn't have to pay a mortgage. No, oh, yeah, right. Um, if you're not spending $30,000 a year on a mortgage and upkeep expenses on a house, you probably can't afford that car. Parsonages are rental situations, which means that the landlord, in this case the church, is responsible for the upkeep. So the pastor lives in this house and doesn't even have to put a penny into it to maintain it. So there's also that. Plus, when the church buys a vehicle, they don't pay tax on it, which reduces the price considerably and makes it easier for the pastor to own. No benefit to the individual, huh? That's why the pastor drives an Escalade and the average congregant drives something considerably less expensive and often doesn't replace their cars anywhere near as regularly. They're paying rent or mortgage plus utilities with no stipends or discretionary funds being applied to their bills, and there goes any money that would put a vehicle like that within their reach. Sometimes the church simply signs over the title to the pastor once the sale is complete and figures out how to arrange stipends or wage garnishments, but again, Garnishing wages to pay off a vehicle largely involves paper transactions, and those garnishments don't directly affect the pastor's income or lifestyle. So this is money that gets moved around on paper, but he never really sees it. So it's not hurting him to quote-unquote part with it. It's made to look like the pastor paid for it in the annual report, mostly so that people don't get all up in arms over, oh my god, I bought my pastor a Cadillac, and... You know, my Chevette needs brakes. But just because he gave back funds that were sitting there apart from his base salary doesn't equate, in my opinion, to him actually buying it. Those funds could have been used in other ways that didn't even involve him. Or let's even talk about buying a late model vehicle for the entire church to use. The vans Oh yeah. at Faith Assembly, okay, they weren't exactly garbage. But they weren't in the best shape either. I broke down in those vans a couple of times. I'm not talking emotionally. I mean the van literally (laughs) broke down. There were moments where I could have emotionally broken down in those vans. Oh, gosh, I'm sure. But no, we're talking about the vans themselves. They broke down more than once. And then we had this rickety old school bus that they had bought at some point that Mm -hmm. we actually did take to a couple of conventions But it also wasn't in the best of shape. And I can remember my youth pastor running and fetching gallons of water to Uh pour into the radiator of this thing just that we could get somewhere. It was crazy. Oh, man. So when I think about that billboard and I think about my pastor talking about how I don't think it's a good use of God's money, 
he also drove Cadillacs. Now, I don't know. I would have to dig into the archives, find annual reports from the early 90s to tell you for sure how this happened. But I also know that this guy had a background in auto sales. And he was one of these people who knew a guy who knew a guy. Yeah. And I think that he got some pretty decent deals on these cars on his own. I would like to believe that he was doing this more on his own and not siphoning off of the church. But again, when you're in a situation where you have convinced yourself that it's God making these decisions, then it really doesn't mess that much with your personal ethics to do it this way, the way that I described either. Because the money is there, and clearly God wants it used this way. In certain instances and cases, it can be a very selfish and knowingly dishonest thing to do. But for most, it really begins and ends there. God basically decided for us, we're his board, and he told us that he wants us to do this for our pastor. And that's really where they just leave it. Is it ethical? Well... From the standpoint of how they look at things, yes. In reality, of course it's not. Yeah. So the whole thing is very smoke and mirrors, just like I started thinking about Amway. Right. When I was going over in my head how some of this stuff happens. It's a lot like Amway Diamonds. Because one of the things that I brought up to my immediate upline back in the day, I had watched that plan spun so many times. I had watched so many circles being drawn that it just sort of clicked in my head. Okay, even in 1995 dollars, we were in from 95 to 98, even in 1995-ish dollars, there was no possible way that what you were making as a diamond was going to have an airplane sitting in your yard. Okay, that's, it just wasn't a thing. Now, some of that stuff was staged. Some of those things belonged to Dexter Yeager and some of the other higher ups and people posed with them like they were their own. But some of them legit had these lifestyles and there's no possible way that even at executive diamond level income, you would have been able to have the level of lifestyle that some of these people had. And there was a reason for that. They were able to afford the things that they had. The ones that legitimately had stuff that was theirs were able to afford it by pocketing profits from the largely cash-driven support material systems that they pushed on their downline. Oh, man. Those are the extra funds that, if you're looking at it in church terms, would be penciled in as allowances in a pastor's salary, stipends, whatever you want to call them. And these... Funds that were made by Amway Diamonds could easily elevate their incomes by anywhere from giving them a 50% increase to doubling or tripling the income made on official product distribution, depending on the size of the organization. Yeah. So I don't think that the imbalance was anywhere near that in any church that I attended, certainly not my home church. I don't think that the pastor was skimming for two or three times his income. I don't think that that was a thing that was going on at all. But so many of the expenses that you and I are personally responsible for simply don't affect a lot of pastors in larger churches. There are things that are taken care of for them that the average person sitting in the pew is still struggling with. So there's that part of it. 
So you don't necessarily have to have the quote unquote income to be able to afford a car like that. You just need to have somebody else taking care of all of the peripheral expenses. Like, you know, when the toilet breaks and you have to call in a plumber and that plumber is going to charge you 600 bucks to put in a new toilet. Well, that's not coming out of the pastor's wallet the way that it would you or me. Right. It's coming out of the funds that already exist within the church because the church owns that property. So there are so many nuances that can basically make a $50,000 a year salary look more like a seventy-five dollars or $80,000 a year salary because of the things that are not being spent by the pastor of the church. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how it gets done. Churches are, let's call them creative mm-hmm. in the ways they allocate and use funds, but by and large, without someone infiltrating the system and directly stealing it, the vast majority of those funds are used for church-related purposes. I believe this wholeheartedly. With varying degrees of disclosure or ethics, of course, but still used for pretty much what they say it's going to be used for. I believe, because I saw more than the average person at my home church, that at least at the time, that church was generally honest when it came to what they collected. If a dollar was given, a dollar was disclosed within those walls. And I had that in italics in my notes because, of course, it doesn't go beyond those walls. So they're honest with their congregation, but they're not telling the federal government how much money is coming in. And that's not their fault. They've been told that they don't have to. But even given the, I don't even want to say it was a fact, but based on what I was able to observe, even given that they were doing what they said they were going to do with it, they did also take various liberties in reporting how that money was used because, again, the government wasn't holding them accountable. Let's keep in mind that just because something is legal doesn't make it ethical. And I definitely did have some lingering questions about the ethics behind how some of that money was allocated and who got to spend it on what. I also thought that the pastor being the best dressed, most financially stable person in the church was kind of a poor reflection of the servant leader model. The fact that he was dressed the best, that he had a decent amount of jewelry, Nothing all that garish or or ornate, but he did have a significant amount of jewelry and his clothes were very nice and he did have that Cadillac and more than one in the time that I was there. Much, much more than one. I can't believe that I'm about to defend this guy, but even the pastor at Mission Impossible, who was far from the best person I ever knew. And I'm being very, very generous putting it that way. But he once told me that when he chose cars, he would choose a car that was, quote, within the median of what the average church member drives. So he would set the bar at what was average in that congregation. And he kind of had a thing for Chevy Luminas. They're not crap cars, but they're Chevys, not Caddies. I have no idea how things have changed because, I mean, if anything at all, his head is a thousand times bigger today than it was then. And it was pretty fucking big then. So I don't know what things look like now. I know that at that point, that was his philosophy. Whether or not we've gone from uh, no animal shall sleep in a bed to no animal shall sleep 
in a bed with sheets. Yeah. I have no idea if we <laughs> if we made it that far in that church. Maybe the next time I'm in the vicinity of Holmes, I'll drive by and see what he's driving. Yeah. Or not. Or not. <laughs> or not. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to wonder if any of them actually listen to the show and now they're going to be out there like looking for me. With pitchforks. Well, yeah. Well, you know what? They they had the, they, they had, had their chance. Out. Yeah. They had their chance and they blew it. But taking that little stroll down episode 11 lane, later on, you and I were at a church with another yes. pastor who I think had an even better attitude about stuff like this. When he was hired as the pastor of that church, he actually negotiated his salary down when he was selected. And he also worked outside the church laying carpet and vinyl because his congregation was one that was largely blue collar and he wanted them to have a leader who they could relate to. So what did he drive? Well, this guy drove a a Honda Civic with 200,000 miles on it. And I remember being in that car and driving around with him a couple of times. I don't even know how we managed the conversation. That thing was so loud and and clunky. (laughs) But that was his main vehicle. That was his that was his primary transport was a Civic with 200,000 miles on it. He, but he did have a he did have a kind of nice backup vehicle. It was another Civic with <laughs> three hundred thousand miles on it and a check engine light that had been on perpetually for about seventy thousand miles. The bottom line for me is that there are pastors out there who understand, right? But there are also many more who either don't understand the wrong in their lifestyle being elevated above pretty much everyone in the congregation, and there are those that flat out don't care. I think that's the smallest group. The don't cares are the smallest group. I think that most of them are just oblivious to the fact that it looks so bad because this is what God wants for them. Just a little bit of a, uh, of a personal note here. Ministry is difficult. Yeah. It's a difficult life. So just from an emotional standpoint, if I had been at that for a while and it was still in that mindset, I would be very quick to just accept that God wanted to do something nice for me and give me a nice car and a nice house to live in and a decent salary at the church that I worked at. Because by the time I reached that point in my career, I'd probably been through some major shit. Yeah. When you look at it from that perspective, it doesn't justify it from the standpoint of logic, but from where these people are in their lives and in their heads and the shit that they get put through, I can absolutely positively see them just sitting there and accepting that this is a blessing, that this is them reaping what they've sown and being faithful and all of that too. Yeah. I get oh, that yeah. mindset of it. I don't agree with it, but I get it. The other part of this is that over time, it is easy to grow numb to certain things like having a conscience about stuff like this, especially when you spend your life being convinced that your prosperity comes from God, not the sacrifices of the actual people who actually put that money in the plate. If God wants them to have an Escalade, they're entitled to it and will defend having it with varying levels of composure. I think about Kenneth Copeland. Yeah. Anytime he is called out for the things that he has, he just goes super cyan on whoever is uh, asking the question. Pretty much. Okay. Now, my pastor justified the whole luxury cars thing by arguing that luxury cars last longer than economy cars. Hmm. And he used to tell me, if you spend $10,000 on a car and have to replace it every five years, 
or spend $30,000 on a car that you'll have for 15 years, what's the difference? Um, the difference, sir, is that you're still trading in your caddies every three years. I mean, yeah. that, I, I saw it more than once. Oh, yeah. So if he was actually keeping those cars for 15 years like that other pastor, 300,000 miles, 200,000 miles, yeah. you know, if you're actually keeping your cars for that long, then yeah, I could get behind that. But I've also never had a car that crapped out on me after five years either. Right. So, I mean, we have a 2008 Versa sitting out in that driveway right now with 156,000 miles on it. It needs some TLC, but it runs fine. It still runs just fine. And in 2008, we paid 10 grand for that car. $10,500. I managed to whittle them down to that. And that car has also been paid off for over eight years and has as cars go been largely trouble free so sorry no um we've had that car it's a 2008 that makes it 13 years old and we only spent 10 grand on it yeah okay now the good book says (laughs) in first timothy 6 10 that the love of money is the root of all evil and the lust for it grows when there's more of it to lust after I was a huge fan of Rich Mullins back in the day. And one of my favorite lines in one of his songs, the song One Thing, is everybody I know says they need just one thing. What they really mean is they need just one thing more. And as churches get bigger, so do things like senses of entitlement over things like owning cars you can't afford. This is not an evangelical thing. This is a human nature thing. Only one problem, though. In those contexts, doesn't the Holy Spirit live in those people? Isn't Jesus supposed to be their wonderful counselor, you know, helping them make better decisions, ensuring that they still have a conscience about things like this, where there are ethical hmms going on? And if all of that is true, and of course we know it's not, but if that's true, then why don't Christians think better about these decisions? Why don't pastors think better about these decisions? Well, it goes right back to what I said a minute ago. They've been conditioned to think this way. And with everything they go through, they can at least clear their own conscience by telling themselves that they've earned it and that this is God's way of saying thank you. Let's switch gears just a little bit at this point and talk about Christian charities. Mm. There are many, many, many ways that Christian charities misuse and misappropriate funds. And again, the ones that function as churches or are affiliated with established churches never have to account for where their money goes. This is why so many of them opt for that designation and go as far as to offer church services, Bible studies, and more in the ministry realm as part of the quote-unquote work that they do as charities within the community. Even the ones that disclose where the money is going still try to keep the agendas of the causes they support hush-hush. Anti-gay and pro-life causes are among the leading recipients of funds from Christian charities, and because so many of their donors agree with their stands on these issues, it doesn't have an adverse effect on the money coming in. Now, Chick-fil-A, which is not a charity, has learned some hard lessons in this arena, and they have and continue to be very outspoken about the evangelical ideals held by the higher-ups in their company. In the recent past, they stopped giving to two major anti-LGBT causes, not because they've seen the light, but because they saw money going away. Get the general public involved, and you simply cannot get away with that shit forever. But keep it in your ecclesiastical family, and you're going to be okay, usually, even when what you're doing is exposed to the masses. Oh, 
and the move did backfire a little too, particularly among evangelicals who accused them of pandering to the, quote, left-wing mob. Mm. Luckily for Chick-fil-A, tasty poultry is still more of a priority to these naysayers than their Christian values because their sales have been pretty damn good over the last few years too. So they didn't lose a whole lot of their evangelical customer base over these decisions. It's just evangelicals did what evangelicals do best. They threw themselves on the floor and screamed like toddlers. But it really didn't make a difference because even the execs at Chick-fil-A understand that there are more people in the general public than there are in the pews. Right. They understand this. And that is the reason why they made this decision, not because it was the right thing to do, but because it would sell more chicken. Yeah. And that's what it boiled down to. The reason I brought them up in the first place is because I want to talk specifically about the two groups that they dropped as a result of all this controversy. The first one was the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and the other is the Salvation Army. Now, I'm going to draw from and quote heavily from an article called Fellowship of Christian Athletes Targets LGBTQ Community with Statement of Faith. Great article by Emma Nye, and it appears on a website called Outsports.com, which targets LGBTQ issues within various sports communities, usually within schools, universities, that sort of thing. This was about Fellowship of Christian Athletes and some of the things that they've been involved in. And I just want to look at a few of the things that she says in this article and give you an idea of what this organization is and what they do. So basically, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes is an international nonprofit organization. They are a Christian sports ministry that has a long history of homophobic agenda. This is from the FCA Statement of Faith. God instituted marriage between one man and one woman as the foundation of the family and the basic structure of human society. For this reason, we believe that marriage is exclusively the union of one man and one woman. They also say, God desires his children to lead pure lives of holiness. The Bible is clear in teaching on sexual sin, including sex outside of marriage and homosexual acts. Neither heterosexual sex outside of marriage nor any homosexual act constitute an alternative lifestyle acceptable to God. Those are official statements by this organization. Oh, and another thing that is part of their agenda, they don't want to come across as haters. So what do they do instead? They try to save gay people. And here's just a quote from the article. Oftentimes, the FCA sees their role within athletics to discourage homosexuality and vows to, quote, save student-athletes from their lifestyles. The FCA views homosexuality, bisexuality, and being transgender as sinful, and they have encouraged college athletes to resist homosexual feelings within themselves and their teammates. This is another one of those organizations that thinks that you can fix the gay. Yeah. Um, for starters, there's nothing to be fixed. And secondly, try all you want. You're not going to de-gay anybody. <laughs> you can get them to say whatever you want them to say. Right. But they're still going to be them. I think that it's also significant to mention here that the author of the article doesn't tell you flat out not to join the FCA. But she wants you to know what you're getting into. So the last part of this says, know that Fellowship of Christian Athletes is anti-gay when joining. Personally, if I identified like that, 
I don't see why I would want to be involved with this in the first place. Really? But the simple fact that they do what they do and they do it the way that they do it is very, very worrying to me, not just from an ethical standpoint, but from a society standpoint. You see, the thing about Christian charities is that they're sheltered in a lot more ways than one. And I think that some of these groups are way more outspoken than they should be allowed to be. Oh, yeah. Because, like I've said many times before, freedom of speech guarantees you an opinion, not an audience. Right. So where the fuck do these people come off telling people what they should be and what they shouldn't be and trying to save them from their gayness? Where where do they get off? it's, It's so dumb. Because it feels like they have to be the spokesperson for morality. And it's like, yeah, your morality is faulty. Yeah, but that's evangelicals in general. Because anything that they don't like, and it's not just the LGBT community. It's anything that they don't like. It's not enough for them to just scroll past, okay? No, No, it has to be eradicated from society. They don't even want it in their presence, which makes absolutely no sense. It's like, okay, you don't want to be around gay people that don't hang out with gay people. They probably don't want to be around you either. Right. You know, so it's a win-win. They don't want your company. You don't want theirs. You don't like the way that they live their lives. Well, then quit fucking watching it. Get the fuck out of their bedrooms. Leave them alone. Do your thing. Let them do their thing. And these things can be done without involving each other. Right. They absolutely can. So what exactly is the problem here? Well, then they get their God involved. Right. And it's like, well, we're the ones that have, quote unquote, the truth. This is the truth, the only way to get to God, the only way of salvation. So the God that made that plan and set everything in motion for us to be saved deserves to have a world that is the way that he wants it to be. And that's pretty much the way that they view everything yeah but the last i read my bible i was made in the image and likeness of god and everyone was made in the image and likeness of god so that has to mean that god just like what the apostle paul wanted to be is all things to all people right so if everyone is made in the image and likeness of god then there has to be gay to god too right there must be but, you know, try telling them that. Yeah. Watch their head explode like they just put it in a microwave on high. The most sinister part of this, I think, is this quote from the beginning of the article. The FCA has descended into the middle and high school level, cementing their bigotry and intolerance at an early age. I started thinking about the episodes that we did on youth ministry. Yeah. 85% of people who don't accept Christ by age 18 never will. Let's add working the gay out of them to that sentiment, too. Not that gay is something that you can ever, ever know, not ever be worked out of anyone. But they try. And this particular organization kind of takes it to the next level. Just those two little snippets that we looked at from their own statement of faith. It's very scary to think that this is an organization that goes into secular places of learning. And start spewing this bullshit all over the place. It really, really is troubling that they can get to my kid at his lacrosse practice in high school. It really, really does bother me that that's a thing that's allowed to happen. Moving along, we are going long again. It's okay. It's okay. Long is good. But I do want to 
kind of put a cap on this, and there are two other organizations, actually, that I want to talk about. The other one that Chick-fil-A dropped was the Salvation Army. Now, I've known all kinds of shit about the Salvation Army for a long time. Yeah. But I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. But their key thing is also an anti-gay agenda. They deny it to the hilt, but it's there. It's definitely observable. So they can say whatever they want about what they perceive themselves to be. But it's a very homophobic organization, period. It just is. I'll give them credit for one thing. They know how to hire good copywriters, though. This silver-tongued response to anti-gay allegations is nothing short of spectacular. It's also easy to believe if you think like an evangelical or if you have no interest in researching the matter any further. But here's the thing. I'm interested. So we're going to have a look at this. This comes from an article on Vox.com. The Salvation Army says it doesn't discriminate against LGBTQ people. Critics say that's not true. And I'm going to lead off with a quote from David Hudson, the national commander of the Salvation Army. Because our organization is rooted in faith, a chorus repeatedly rises that insists that we are anti-LGBTQ. And that refrain is dangerous to the very community we are wrongly accused of rejecting. At minimum, perpetuating rhetoric that vilifies an organization with the reach, housing, programming, and resources that we have in place to lift them up is counterintuitive and inefficient. But when that organization depends on the generosity of donors to provide much-needed assistance to so many across all walks of life, it's devastating. So it's the fault of the people who point it out, not the fault of the people who do this shit. There is plenty of crosstalk within the ranks of the Salvation Army, particularly in the area of work they actually do for the LGBTQ community. I'll refer to the above article for examples. You can click to read them yourself. But they've also found themselves in the middle of a number of controversies just in the last 20 years, or 20 years or so. Their bigotry toward alternative lifestyles is getting louder over time. They're not trying to hide it any more than they used to, and it is actually becoming more. And that's regardless of the small bones, very, very, very small bones that they toss to these communities and people groups in an effort to save a little face. Again, you can click to see the bullet points on this. It's a very good article, and the link is right there in the show notes. I highly recommend looking at this. But just a couple of highlights from this article. In 2011, the New York Times interviewed a man who claimed the Salvation Army denied him and his boyfriend shelter, quote, unless we broke up and then left the sinful homosexual lifestyle behind, unquote. The man, Bill Browning, said, we slept on the street and they didn't help when we declined to break up at their insistence. That's right. Break up at once right here in front of us. Die to yourselves. See that? See it? It's yeah, There it is yeah. again. Die to yourselves right here in front of us or freeze. Sadly, it fits the evangelical profile to a T. This one thing is something that they just flat out cannot handle. Yeah. And I'm not sure what precisely it is. Well, I have an idea. I have an idea of what it is because I think I've said it before on the show. You start thinking about this and your brain almost automatically puts you in certain scenarios and you start thinking about how this would impact you personally. Right. Well, you know what? I think that that's most of us, but most of us know how to just say, okay, well, that's silly because I know that's not me and right. just walk away from it. These people have a 
real, real problem with that. They just can't shake it off and they just can't let these people be themselves. It's rage inducing to think that adult grown up people can't just say, okay, this is not something that I want to happen in my bedroom, so it's not going to, and just walk away. It boggles my mind why grown up people can't just do that. But another quote from the same source said that in 2017, Think Progress reported that the Salvation Army's Substance Abuse Center in New York City had engaged in discriminatory behavior against transgender people. The center was one of four New York-based facilities that was found to engage in violation of city laws, including refusing to accept transgender people as patients, assigning rooms to transgender people based on their assigned sex at birth, and requiring transgender patients to undergo physical exams to determine whether they were on hormone therapy or had undergone surgery. What fucking business is any of that of yours? I know, right? I I just, I cannot get over this. I'm reading this, and it's making my skin crawl reading it. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, just the the sheer audacity of all of that. I also want to spotlight just one little part of that. The center was one of four New York-based facilities that was found to engage in violation of city laws. Four facilities in one city with multiple violations. Let that sink in. Yeah. Okay? And to boot, one of the most diverse cities in the United States. Oh, yeah. Go somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, someplace that's a lot less populated, that has a lot less social and cultural diversity. Oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? Just go where you're going to be happy working with the people that have needs. You can't discriminate against somebody because of who or what they are. They're still human beings. They still have needs. Right. And if you would help anyone else, well, guess what? This person is standing at your door right now. What would Jesus do? Just think about it for a moment. What would Jesus do? And remember, before you answer that he would send them away, understand that he once reclined at that table with a bunch of publicans and sinners. Right. The people that most other people look down on. And he reclined at that table with them and had a meal with them and was okay being in their presence. And like I said last week, I'm sorry. If he can do that, who are you again? Yeah. That is, to me, what it's always going to boil down to. We could do an entire episode, episode on just, on the, Salvation just Army. the shit that the Salvation Army does and the way that they try to cover up the things that they do and try and make it sound like it's not that bad. These are just a couple of examples that don't even begin to scratch the surface. You want to talk about the tip of the iceberg? This is a crystal at the tip of the iceberg, okay? That's how big this thing is, and that's how deep it goes. But again, we're not last podcast on the left. I would love to hear them tackle this and sick their research team on it. Yeah. But we just don't have those resources. But yes, we absolutely could do, if we wanted to, an entire episode, probably series. Yeah on what this organization does and just how rotten to the core it actually is. But being that we are just a small-time ex-evangelical podcast, (laughs) we're going to move ahead and talk about just one more organization before we close things out tonight. The National Christian Foundation. So who are they? Who is the NCF? 
Their primary operation is called the Giving Fund, and it is what's called a donor-advised fund, and it works like a charitable savings account. You have an online dashboard where, as a donor, you can go in and give various assets into this fund and receive a tax deduction at the time of the gift. You also get recommended grants for their favorite charities. So basically, this is some place where you can go if you don't know where you want to give your money, but you know kind of what you want to give your money to. Well, this organization basically collects the money and then disperses it. And they're tied to some very, very not nice people. Let's Mm -hmm. put it that way. The National Christian Foundation, it's been described as America's biggest Christian charity. And some of the ways that they spend your money, your money, if you have ever given to them, it's an eye-opener. And it should make you angry, especially if you're coming out of this. It should definitely make you angry. It's the nation's eighth largest public charity, and it is pouring tens of millions of dollars each year into a number of mostly anti-LGBTQ hate groups. And yeah, again, what a target these people are just because of who they love. Right. It's just, it, it makes me sad. It really does make me sad because just the way that society, until very recently, has looked at these particular people groups and the one organization, the one place where they should be able to find welcome and acceptance, I think would be within the Christian church if these people were following what they believe to be the example of their savior and they can't find respite within the walls of the church. And it makes me sad to think about it. The things that they go through, the things that they are put through just for being who they are and loving who they love. By far the biggest recipient of NCF donations is Alliance Defending Freedom, a large network of Christian extremist lawyers who have supported criminalizing homosexuality, sterilizing transgender people, and claim that gay men are pedophiles. The group recently came out against the Congressional Democrats Equality Act, which would ban discrimination against LGBTQ Americans. That's kind of a nefarious group of people. Yeah. That's all kinds of hideous. The Alliance Defending Freedom received $49.2 million from the NCF between 2015 and 2017. So about 20 million bucks a year. 25 million bucks a year. That's on average. The Family Research Council, an organization identified by the Southern Poverty Law Center, I'm getting better at saying that, (laughs) as an anti-LGBT hate group which has attempted to tie gay men to pedophilia for many years, also received donations from the NCF topping $5.3 million during the same time period. They love pouring money into anti-gay causes. Incidentally, in this particular article, they interviewed Chrissy Stroop, And she is someone that I consider a friend of this show. She was um, one of the people that I was, that I I talked with a lot when we were in the launch stages of this and Mm -hmm. got to following her on Twitter. And she's someone whose efforts to expose evangelical fuckery on a lot of levels, particularly in the area of LGBTQ discrimination, to me, command both mention and respect. There's a lot of good stuff that I don't have time to get into, but the article is there, and so is the link. Definitely have a look at this one, too. But one thing about this article that I need to bring up before we completely wind things down here is that 
right there within the space of the article, they have a list of 24, count them, 24 recipients of funds from the NCF that are straight up hate groups that are named by the Southern Poverty Law Center. 24 hate groups. Not all of them anti-LGBT, but the vast majority of them are anti-gay and pro-life. And, you know, we, we talked in depth a couple of episodes back about the whole pro-life thing, so I'm not going to get into that again now. But it's another cause that is a major recipient of funds by this group. And this article is now almost two years old. Now, also a couple of episodes back, we talked about the increase in the number of hate groups that there have yeah. been just in the last couple of years. Yeah. So I have to wonder, this is not terribly dated, but it's still dated yeah. material on this site. So what about right now? Yeah. Where are we right now and the numbers of hate groups that are funded by this one organization? So it really does make someone wonder who they, pardon the gratuitous pun here, have crawled in bed with since. You can look at the article to see some of the corporations and organizations that funnel charitable funds through the NCF that make their way in seven and eight figure terms into organizations like the ADF. It's actually rather scary and also begs the question, do these firms even research where all this money is going and how it's being used? Because I believe if they dug a little bit deeper, a lot of them wouldn't even be involved in any of this. Oh, yeah. Now, it is time to start winding this down a little bit, so I want to end with just a little bit of advice. For starters, when you give to any charity, do your research. Figure out how much money is going to the cause that you're supporting and how much makes its way into, let's just call them other avenues of disbursement, because some of these groups are so huge, they receive funds from other sources, sometimes secular ones, so know where you are sending your money. Also, Keep in mind that if you're coming out of evangelical faith and can't unwrap your brain from the concept of tithing yet, at least please loosen the ecclesiastical reins enough to understand that 10% is a lot of money and that generosity doesn't have a dollars and cents gauge. Give responsibly and protect your own credit, lifestyle, and more. But if you're a giver, then don't be afraid to give. Just know where your money is going. Next, Keep in mind that reputable charities usually provide the donor with the ability to designate where their money goes. I, I mentioned this earlier. If you're giving to a charity because you support their work in a given area of service, designate your donation for support of that initiative and only that initiative. It isn't foolproof, but it does help ensure that your money does what you want it to much more than just putting a fiver in an offering plate ever would. Also, please only give to secular charities who have to, by law, account for what they do with your money. The carte blanche approach that the IRS takes with Christian charities and nonprofits is deplorable. Give your money to organizations that are held accountable. Oh, and like I said earlier, let your congresspeople know that you don't like the laws the way that they're written and urge them to apply Form 990 standards to all charities and nonprofits, even those with religious affiliations. It is legal, it is constitutional, and it is about fucking time it happened. Lastly, as an individual, if you're coming out of this thing and feeling a little buyer's remorse for all the good money that you've thrown after bad to your church or a Christian charity, remember once again that that was then and this is now. You know more now. 
You're getting used to asking for more information and learning things. You're getting better at demanding proof and being told the truth about things. The truth is, you've come a long way, baby. And the less you worry about some of the awful things that may or may not have been done with your money in the past, the more excited you can get about the choices you make in the future. Choices that will help people and not harm them. Choices that have some accountability behind them on the part of the recipients of your hard-earned money. You have a future ahead that is just watching and waiting on the edge of its seat for you to become smarter, more pragmatic, and more skeptical of the things that deserve it, while also remaining empathetic enough to want to help make people's lives better and making good decisions about how you go about that. And that, new atheist, is a clear sign that you are actively about the business of getting and staying unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.